Thank you, uh, Pastor Craig. And just uh, let me just say on behalf of the church, it is, it is good to see the Baileys back on Sunday morning worship. Um, you, have, uh, you have reminded us through your, your joy, even here on a Sunday morning, of what we've been talking about the last several weeks about trials, about endurance in, in the face of, of deep suffering. So thank you for the inspiration that you are to this church and to this church family. Um, Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. It's, again, a pleasure and a privilege to be with you in God's Word as we continue and uh, end our little mini-series on the book of James. If you've been tracking with us, we have been exploring what it means to have true hope, true wisdom, to be steadfast and endure because Christ is our hope. And so today we conclude this section of Scripture in James chapter 1, and we're just going to look at these three verses sort of the summation of what James is really trying to get his church that is scattered across the dispersion to understand. So turn, tap, swipe, rotate, spin, whatever verb will get you to today's verse, James 1, verses 16 to 18. James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. This is a reading of God's holy word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let us pray before we begin. Father, let your word remind us of who you are, and in seeing who you are, May we see ourselves rightly to be the ones who live called by your great gospel to be a light to all of creation. May your word change us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we discussed what it meant to endure through our trials by, by reminding ourselves that though we are lowly, we have much to boast in because of the riches we have in Christ. And that these trials we are facing are not, not temptations brought about an evil God who wants us to fail, but rather trials that we are to overcome because we are looking at Christ as our great treasure to lead us through. And if you've been following us with us as we've looked at these first 15 verses in the book of James together, you will know that these Christians that James is writing to are struggling with all kinds of sufferings and difficulties and trials. You know, religious persecution, uprooting their lives to be scattered to an unfamiliar and a different place, facing uncertainty about what would be happening to them, and even struggling to understand how does God fit into all of these different areas that are into my life right now. And, and so in wrapping up this section here, James, like, like any good teacher, wants to make sure that they root all of this in their identity in God and want them to know that God's identity shapes their reality. God's identity shapes their reality. And this is true of us today, and so if there's, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from all of what we've been studying for the last three weeks is that God's identity shapes our reality. If you've got that, you've got the last three weeks, all right? So we need to kind of dive into how James is doing that in these three verses. So first, we have to shatter anything that would prevent us from seeing God clearly, 
This is why we start out in verse 16 where James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, in order to see God's identity clearly, you need to take away anything that is robbing you of seeing the reality that God wants you to live. If you're a boxer, right, in the boxing ring of life, and you've got one eye that's damaged from seeing clearly, you're going to get hit by things from that side, from the blind side. Why? Because you've been deceived. That, that part of God and character and his characters is hidden from your sight. You know, it's not that God isn't there. It's just that you are not able to see because part of your vision is obscured. So notice what James says in this short, compact verse. It is entirely possible to be deceived and still be a beloved brethren in the family of God. James is not saying that deception or you being deceived makes you illegitimate, doesn't make you a Christian, but this deception can lead you into grave and serious errors. These deceptions can hide you from seeing how God is working through the trials and through the pain that we all are experiencing. You know, this is true of the Old Testament people of God. The Israelites were deceived into thinking that God wanted them to make a golden calf, right? But after that incident, they were still able to walk as the people of God, but they had to be rebuked. It was a blindness in their understanding of God that robbed them from fully seeing the reality that God wanted to walk amongst his people, not in the image of a golden calf, but walking in and through them. They were still God's people once they took the promised land, but they were deceived into believing that they needed a physical king rather than trusting God as king. They were deceived into generations and generations of foolishness that would blind them from understanding God's word fully and even that they forget the word of God. Nevertheless, God is with them. Nevertheless, God still calls them his. You know, the church throughout every generation has had the same kind of struggle. The deception that came into the early church to embrace this sort of secret, mysterious knowledge of the world called Gnosticism, right? The, de- the deception that entered into the believing churches in the medieval area that, 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 that foolishly placed these graven images called relics that they thought would give them some sort of an extra blessing of God that they could pray to. The deception that hits the modern-day church where we see in our our 24-7 news cycle and sort of the opinion shows that that sort of bleed this ideology of the world that has now unfortunately served as a primary means of discipleship for many Christians instead of the Word of God, instead of the means of grace. And we've allowed it to invade our sanctuaries. We've allowed it to invade the practice and the shape of the form of the church, sort of, you know, this sort of gospel of material prosperity and comfort. And so all of a sudden, our our church's mission statements become, how can we fit in rather than how can we be faithful? This deception hits us, and we must be aware of it. And we tend to buy into these because we are not able to see the identity of the true and living God that is right before us. You know, one of my favorite observations about the world's deception comes in the form of uh, targeted advertising. Um, Did you know that the highest-rated podcast for the political right and the highest-rated podcast for the political rest, left rather, are, are sponsored by the same advertising companies. Stamps.com. Simply safe. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. How could the same company support these two polarizing ideologies 
right, and claim these marketing dollars, right? It's a deception that they want you to create and make you believe that there's, those company values match your identity. And the brands within these companies will even create opposing brands to appeal to these sort of niche kind of markets, right? Um, the social commentator Hank Green notices that the soap company Dove, which major campaigns promotes, you know, body positivity for real women, and the soap company Axe, which objectifies women to delude men into thinking that the only thing missing in their game was just soap, right? Both of these brands are owned by the same company. <laughs> the company that makes Boca burgers to promote the culture of, of vegetarian, environmentalism is also, vegetarian environmentalism is also happens to be the largest distributor of hot dogs in the world. The makers of SlimFast to promote healthy lifestyles is also the same corporation that owns Ben and Jerry's, Briars, and Good Humor ice cream bars. You get where I'm going with this? In the eyes of marketing, it doesn't matter how you identify yourself as long as the deception is that your identity leads you to support their products and buy their brands. James knows that it is entirely possible to love God, to be a beloved brother and sister in Christ, and yet have our eyes blinded and deceived about God's identity and our place in the world. And his heart for his church, our heart for, for this church, is that we all consider the question of what is deceiving you here this morning? What scales are in your eyes that are preventing you from seeing Christ clearly? What trials are you facing right now that have so overtaken your heart that you have misplaced your hope? What are you forgetting about God and his character that is making you want to reject him? You know, this is the reason why people call the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's because of verses like verse 16. It, it really reminds us that just like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, there's really two kinds of people in the world. There's the wise and there's the foolish. And James is saying all these trials, the church, all that we're going through, though it seems like it's all God's fault, though it seems like no good can come out of living lowly, though it seems impossible to to. Be steadfast and consider these trials as a joy. You know what? All of these things that we're facing are actually a gift from the Father himself, and he desires for you to see it clearly. So how does James want us to see our reality without being deceived? Look at your next two verses, verse 17 and 18. Living in a true reality means knowing God's true identity. Living in the reality of God's character is the answer to deception and the way to endurance through trials. So what does God say about, so what does these two verses say about God and who he is in the midst of suffering? Uh, there's just four things I, I want you to consider here in these two verses. Number one, he's a generous God. He's a generous God. The text says every good gift and perfect gift comes from him. So just Pause, just stop, and, and, and just think about that right now. All right. Out of all the chaos in our lives right now, just, just imagine if you could with me just one good thing that you've got right now. Just one. Okay. Got it? All right. Now, I want you to think about that and, and just think, that came from God. All right. Imagine another good thing. And another. And another. That came from God. 
Now think about all the ways in which God provided for you this month. That came from him. The last two, three, this past year. Imagine the course of your entire life sustaining you, giving you grace, providing you with relationships and joy in the time that you needed it the most. All of these things came from our generous God. Imagine with me, if you took all these gifts, if you were to write them all down, and imagine if you had a person in your life that just sort of wrapped up all of these gifts for you and just gave them to you consistently over the course of your entire life. This is essentially what, what, what God is saying. God has done this for you. God isn't the one bringing temptation into your life so he can sort of break you or destroy you. God is the one giving you the gifts that you need to endure through these temptations and trials. And the last gift that he gave that was so precious and important is the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I, 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 think, I don't think we understand the goodness of God's gifts to us. We act like a, a spoiled child who doesn't know how much his parents sacrificed and how much time was, was, was spent to bring good gifts to their children. You know, we, we, we say to God, oh, you know, that's not the gift we really wanted, even though if we got what we really wanted, that gift would lead us to ruin. You know, God gives us manna from heaven, and we instead demand quail and eat it to our own shame. James says, no, know who your God is. He is a generous God to you, and his generosity has not ceased. Number two, that he is the father of lights. This is God's character, God's identity. He's a generous God, but he is also the father of lights. This phrase shows up only one time. And it's right here in this text in James. And it carries the idea that God is the father of the stars in the sky, all the sort of celestial bodies that are in the universe. God is the father of all of them. One of my mentors uh, often said this that helped me to gain a deeper appreciation for, for this phrase. He said that when you look out to the night sky from where we are, we don't really find it impressive that God is sort of the father of lights because the stars that are visible to us don't seem to make a huge impact on us because, you know, of all the light pollution that we have in our cities and in our areas. Um, we're sort of desensitized to light. Um, we've sort of never known a time where light was not available to us. But imagine if you were living in the era of the early church. Imagine at night, sort of in, in pitch black darkness, you see the fullness of the night sky. And if you've ever gone camping in the wild, some of you guys will know what I'm talking about here, right? Suddenly the stars just light up millions and, and billions and billions of stars shining so vividly and brightly. And, and, and if you just look out there, you just can't help and think about your place in the universe and wonder, how could God be in control of all of this? Scripture tells us that God is the Father of lights and that He reaches out to you, this infinitesimal little speck in the universe, to give you every good and perfect gift. In other words, the God who fashioned and shaped everything that we could see in the sky at night, every molecule that sustains the breath in our lungs during the day, the God who keeps the world spinning and our lives progressing, this God is in control of your present trial and in control of your present storm. 
You know, every irrational dream that you've had about the upcoming or impending darkness, you know, that sort of isn't real. Every time you don't know when the next provision's going to come, this God holds all these delicate things in his hand and will give you everything that you need. Why would he do that? Why would this God do that? Number three, because God has never and will never change. Look at the end of verse 17 that he has no shadow, that he has no turning. The God who has been faithful will always remain faithful. And there's nothing that you and I can do that will change that. The God who is steadfast in our lives, not because of what we do for him, but in spite of what we do. I mean, if you can think about that one friend you have in your life that you know is just reliable, you can talk to him and go to them about anything. That one person that, that you know will always be there and never lead your side, and you just multiply that friend times a million, billion, billion, and you've got something that's not even close still to the faithfulness of God. We get glimpses of God's faithfulness in Scripture. This is the God who watches over his people and who gives to them mercy upon mercy, despite every time that his people change and rebel against him. This is the God who forgives Adam and Eve in the garden, and despite their turning away, God remains unchanging to bring them both back to himself. This is the God who forgives Jacob, despite Jacob being a liar and a runaway, and gives to him the blessing of the people of God through his sons. This is the God who forgives the people of God in the wilderness, who redeems them over and over again through judges, who restores the kingdom after the walls were destroyed and wrecked, who forgive them even though they do not know what they were doing when they crucified his one and only son on the cross. This is the God who forgives his church, the broken body of Christ with all of its failures and inefficiencies and all the turmoil and drama and sin and say that the gates of hell will not stand upon his church. He has never abandoned you. He has never left your side. He remains unchanging through every unchanging uh, moment of your life and in your heart. Number four, the start of verse 18 says that his own will gave you a new birth by the word of truth, or, or it's just another word, a phrase for gospel. His own will gave you a new birth by his glorious gospel. Now this is where in this fourth, fourth point, we get to flex some sort of Presbyterian muscle here and, and talk about the sovereign will of God. Why do we care so much in our theology and in our church about that it is God's will to bring faith in us and not sort of our will to bring faith in God? Why is it that God needs to be the one who plants the gospel in our hearts, who, who calls us to see our need for Christ due to our sin, and then sort of gives us the Holy Spirit and adopts us as one of his children. Why is it that God gives us a new birth instead of us giving ourselves a new birth? Why? There's many great answers to that question. I'm just going to give you one. He wanted his church. He wanted his church. He loved his church so much that he didn't wait for us to choose him before he pursued us. 
His will was so strong for us that he overwhelmed us with his mercy by showing us the crucified Christ for our sins. And his compassion for us was so great that the resurrected Christ gave to us the promise that he would be near to us no matter what else would happen in our lives. God's sovereign, unchanging, perfect will pursued us so much that his grace was irresistible and there was nothing more that we could do than just bow before the truth that we are his. Do you know why this is so comforting? Because if the condition of grace and the condition of new birth, the condition of the acceptance of the gospel was in our own will, I mean, can you imagine the chaos that that would be? I mean, think about how often your will has just changed today, right? I don't care if you're the most disciplined person in the world. You have mornings and days where you wake up and you just, like, can't anymore, right? It's never even like some like large thing that happens that make you lose your will, right? It's, it's, it's just something like insanely tiny that sparks sort of this like dynamite of explosion you've been bottling up inside of you for the past several months, right? Trying to keep your will intact, right? You sort of you spill some water on your clothes, you know. You get a text for something when it should have been an email. You go to a meeting, which should have been an email. You get an email, which should have been a Facebook message. Your kids try to tell you how to do something incredibly obvious. You know, your coffee isn't hot enough. You're, you're just a ticking time bomb at all times. And there's this one moment where your will just collapses. And you just, like, just say, I'm just going to curl up in my bed in the fetal position because I'm just done. Our wills are not as strong as we like to think. Our bodies are so weak when it comes to our devotion and love towards God. Aren't you glad that it is the will of God who brought you to himself? Aren't you glad that it doesn't depend on you? That he gives you strength for each day and a bright hope for tomorrow like we sing all the time in that, in that hymn, Blessed Assurance. That he promises in scripture to lift you up on wings like eagle when your strength feels like you have none. You know, we are so obsessed with the power of our own abilities that we forget about the identity of a God whose power never runs out and has no end. A power that would love you so much that he would send his son to show it. How do these four things change the perspective of the reality that you are now living in? Are these four things the things that you know and rest in in God today? And how would that change the way that you view yourself? Let me unpack something about all these things and how it, how it, how about the way that God views you here today. And I want to focus on the last part of of verse 18 because this is something that we often skip through um, and maybe because it doesn't really mean that much to us in our current day and age. And that is in the last part of verse 18, if you look at these verses here, it says that God calls us to be the first fruits of his creatures. Did you miss the impact of what James was saying to his church? That we would be a first fruits of his creatures. Why doesn't this impact us? It's, it's because, you see, we weren't growing up in the age of, of, early, of the early church, in, in the early Judaism. The Old Testament Jews 
would have been blown away by this idea that God calls us his first fruits of his creatures because of the importance and significance that first fruits had in their everyday life. Almost everything that they owned in their house was, by God's law, called to be given to God as first as an offering called first fruits. It wasn't just a percentage. It was giving the first fruit meant that it meant the, the quality of that percentage had to be the best. It had to be the absolute best, right? So, you know, your barley, right? Leviticus 23, 10 to 14 says, first fruits of that go not towards your homebrew, but to the Lord, right? Your, your wheat harvest, Exodus 23, 16 says, don't make it your sourdough, give it to the Lord first, right? Wine and oil, Deuteronomy 18, 4 says, not just that, but the fleece of your sheep as well. Fruit of the new tree that you just planted, you got to wait four years. And then after four years, you got to give all the fruit of that four years as a first fruits to the Lord. And then after five years of planting that tree, then you can finally start enjoying the fruit from the tree. Leviticus 19.23. What's, what's being conveyed here? What's the value? First fruits represent the very best of what you own and the very best of what you have. It represents this cherished possession that you are giving away to, to be a blessing to God's people and to give it as an offering of praise. So imagine growing up in this. All your life, you're told by your parents, hey, hey, don't touch that. that that's the first fruits. That belongs to God. This first fruits is important. This is the most valuable thing. We, we just can't let anyone eat this or have this or use this. This is a treasured thing that belongs to us. And you brought to the temple and you're carrying the first fruits and, and your parents are saying, hey, be delicate with that. Did you count it and make sure it was exactly what, what, what belongs to the Lord? This is important. This is our first fruits to God. When you had a child, the firstborn child was considered to be consecrated as a first fruits. This is why Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord and to the temple. So your whole life, you're seeing all of this happen here. You're seeing, you're growing up with this understanding of all these first fruits, of how important, of how valuable, of how precious it is. And then James turns it around here and says, you are God's first fruits. You are precious and valuable to him. You are kept for him. You are set apart for him. You are consecrated and dedicated to him because he thinks of you as his priority and he calls you his sons and daughters. God's identity shapes your reality, but it also shapes the way that you identify yourself. One of my professors in seminary often said this, and I thought it was a throwaway line in his class, but I realized every day more and more how true this statement is. And so I'll pass it on to you as, as, as a little bit of wisdom. He said, all that you need to counsel God's people can be boiled down to these two questions. Who is God and who am I? In other words, all the ways that we mess up in our walk in faith, all the deception that enters into our lives is the result of either A, not knowing God correctly, or B, not knowing ourselves in light of God's identity correctly. Too often when I talk to with people who are struggling in their walk with Jesus, it's because they have a much lower view of themselves than how God sees them. 
they enter into what I called reformed wormification identity. Right? They just say, I'm a worm, I'm scum, I'm dirt, I'm the stinky armpit in the body of Christ, like you name it. They just, they just continually heap this upon themselves. And, and they, they hear passages that say you are the first fruit of God, and they can't believe it. They can't. Because their own view of themselves surpasses what God says about them. And in a weird, strange way, it's pride. You're saying, I know myself better than God has called me. So they continue to live in a cycle of guilt and shame, of self-hate and loathing, of depression, thinking God's just always mad at them and just gives them enough mercy just to live and that they should be happy with that. And then they think of their lives having very little dignity or value or worth in God's kingdom. So you know how last week I told you that you're not a fish who's just attracted to lures? Today I'm going to tell you, hey, you're not a worm either. Right? And yet I know what Psalm 22.6 says, but that's not what that verse means. You are beloved child of God. This is how he sees you. What God says here about you being his first fruit should make you realize something incredible. That because we are the hands and feet of Christ, you are more valuable to God's kingdom than you could ever know. No matter what your job title or how much you own, your life has meaning and purpose and value because you are made in his image. Created and given new birth so that Christ would reign in all the places and people that you touch that no one else in the world can touch. You are bringing about the new creation. So, church, no matter what deceptions you believe about yourself and the situation that you are in, no matter how many times you lie about who you are in God's sight, you matter to God because he has willed you to himself as his first fruits. My hope and prayer for all of us is that when we see God's identity, we can see our new reality. And I pray that that would carry you on this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this unbelievable truth that we are called your first fruits. God, that the power to endure trials, the power to be sustained lies not in our own will or our own strength, but in the identity of a generous God, the identity of the Father of lights, Lord, who has willed us to himself, Lord, who calls us his first fruits. Father, we are amazed by the grace and truth of this fact. Let us live now in the reality of who we already are in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.